Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, and thank you that, God, you are here with us. We thank you for laying in Aoko and all that you're doing in her life, and we see that you are real, that you're alive, you're moving, you're living. And so, Lord, we ask, God, that as we get into your word and study it this morning, that you would give us hearing ears, Lord. Give us a clear mind and give us a heart that will change to your word. Lord, speak deeply to us. And I pray, God, that you would stir up a new passion by the power of your spirit inside of our hearts, God. And so, Lord, we give you this time anointed, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I came across this article of a mother who got herself in this predicament. The headline of this article read like this. Toddler buys $400 couch on Amazon unbeknownst to the mom. Yes, a two-year-old girl already has an online shopping habit. The mother said she had been browsing couches through the Amazon app on her cell phone before her toddler asked to play with the device. Then days later, the mom received an email alerting her that a $400 couch had been shipped to her home. Then the mom's like wondering, did I buy a couch in my sleep? While she eventually connected the dots, her baby girl was able to complete the purchase with with that single tap of the buy now with one click button on the Amazon app. Lesson learned, said the mother. Since it had already shipped, it was too late to cancel and to return it. Uh, and to return it would cost her like $79 restocking fee and $100 in return shipping. So the mother just listed the gray tough couch on a resale site for $300. And the ad she put out reads, brand new in the box, ordered it by mistake. My toddler actually did buy with one click on Amazon. It's more of a hassle to ship back, so I'll take a loss. Bummers, yeah? I guess lesson learned in that before you give your child your phone, right? With an app that's open to that. Well, as we return to our study in the book of Hebrews, we find this predicament. It's the predicament of a person who turns away from Jesus and abandons the truth that they have learned, which brings the loss of the only atonement that can save you from judgment. And that's the sacrifice of Christ. So the title of our message is this, The Predicament of Pulling Away from Jesus. The Predicament from Pulling Away from Jesus. We're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 26 through 39 this morning. We're going to finish off this chapter as we've been making our way. Isn't this amazing? We start in chapter 1, we've been going verse by verse studying this book, and now we're going to end chapter 10. Only two or three, three chapters left here in this book. So Hebrews 10, from verse 26 through 39. And this predicament from pulling away from Jesus means that you face this, and this is our outline. No other offering, no other outcome, and no other option. So the predicament of pulling away from Jesus. So let's look at this number one in our outline. The heading is no other offering, no other offering. Now take a look with me here now. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And we'll stop right there. So we begin with this case. 
if a person does sin willfully. Now, understand, in context, the sin that is being spoken of here is a deliberate rejection of Jesus Christ. So understand that, number one. Just understand that in your mind. First and foremost, let that be in your mind. That's what sin willfully means here in context. And this is especially intentional because it's after this person has received the knowledge of the truth as written here. That is after having a full understanding of the truth of the gospel. So if this person rejects Jesus now, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's saying there's no other sacrifice that can atone for your sins. The idea here is this. If you take Jesus out of the equation, then there's no other effective sacrifice for our sins to save us. Now, remember we've been learning in Hebrews how the blood of animals could not fully remove sin. Remember we've been studying this. I mean, look up at Hebrews 10 verse 4. It says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So the writer now, fast forward, goes down here in what we're reading. So without Jesus, there's really nothing else to atone for your sins. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other offering. Thus our heading here, no other offering. And because now there's no other atonement, what awaits the person who rejects Jesus, and that's in this next verse, is the fearful expectation of God's judgment. And that judgment is the same now, it's written here, fiery indignation that is meant for God's adversaries. Now, who are God's enemies? Well, right away we could think Satan and his demons, right? So the idea is, is if one rejects Christ's atonement for sin, then they will put themselves in this predicament. And that's they will suffer the same sentence God gives his enemies, his adversaries. This, uh, these two words, this fiery indignation, it refers to that place, really, of eternal punishment, and we know that as hell, right? In Revelation 20.10, it's called the lake of fire, and that's the place where Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are cast into. And remember what I've said in, in times past, hell was never created for man, but really for Satan and his demons. That was not, never God's intention, but for anyone who deliberately chooses to reject Jesus and his blood, that will be their eternal judgment. It's like what C.S. Lewis once wrote, all that are in hell choose it, right? We've talked about that in the past. Okay, the writer then says this. Now, not unlike how, verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in verse 28, you know, the, the Jewish guys who are reading this, remember Hebrews is written to the Jews, they would have known this. They would have known if any Jew had rejected Moses' law, right? Which is what? To reject the old covenant, right? Everything the old covenant, the old system we've been talking about in this book, all that entailed. Then that person will be brought to a trial on the confirming testimony of two or three witnesses as written here. And then witnesses say, hey, yeah, they rejected our, the covenant that God gave through Moses. And then they would be sentenced, you know what, to be stoned to death without mercy. Now, all this is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So that's how serious it was to reject the old covenant. 
So then the writer says in verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So in other words, if rejecting the old covenant called for that judgment of death right away, then how much more worse will it be for those who willfully sin? And remember what that meant, rejecting Jesus in this new covenant. Now, here we see in this verse, there are three things listed about rejecting Jesus. And the first thing is, look here, to reject Jesus means they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. They, in other words, they, they treat Jesus as if he's worthless or nothing. You know, it would be like, say you're, say you're walking down the street, you're walking down the road, and, and you're rock, walking down the street, and you see a penny on the ground. Now, you don't care that it's actually a 1945 Lincoln wheat penny that's worth $185,000, right? So you, so you just step on it. So you just kick it to the curb and walk away. Well, that's the picture. To reject Jesus is to treat him like he's worthless, like kicking him to the curb, trampling him underfoot. And another thing he lists here, to reject Jesus means they have counted the blood of the covenant, basically a common thing. Now, the blood of the covenant is the blood of Jesus, right? Which, remember, we've been studying represents Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And so by that blood, the writer puts a little note in the middle of that, that we are sanctified, and we talked about that, how we are made right with God, we're made righteous with Christ's righteousness, we're justified in Him. So to reject the blood of Christ is to treat Him a common thing, or the blood a common thing. Which means, you know, if a Jewish person is reading this and it says, oh, a common thing, they know that what that means. That means that His blood is unclean. His blood is defiled. He is unholy. What? Calling Jesus unholy? That cannot be, right? But that's what you're doing when you reject Christ. You know, whenever we sing that that old worship song, uh, This is Love, I'm always gripped by by this line, you know, when we sing. And it's after the first verse says, Nail, pierced hands, wounded side, this is love, this is love. And then right after that, it says, a holy heart was sacrificed. I, I always keyed in on that when we first started singing that song. Like, wow, I never thought about Jesus. This was his holy heart that was sacrificed. And out of his holy heart or body, you can say, flowed the holy blood of Jesus for my sins. So the, to reject Jesus is like, whoa, calling Jesus' blood unholy, defiled, common. Now, the third thing we see in this voice to reject Jesus means they have insulted, it says here at the end, the spirit of grace. Now, why is that? Well, because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what? To present Jesus Christ. That's his ministry. That's what we, we've, we've learned about the Holy Spirit. It's about Jesus. It's putting forth Jesus. It's never about him, the Holy Spirit, but it's about Jesus, pointing to Jesus, convicting of sin, to bring people to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So, so the Holy Spirit is about, is, gets insulted when you reject Jesus, and he's the spirit of grace. Why? Because Jesus brings the gift of God's grace, salvation to us. So that's why to reject Jesus is basically to diss the Holy Spirit. Think about this now. 
after reading this. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now there's a lot of controversy on this, and there's a lot of talking. What is that? What is that unpardonable sin? But we've studied that before. This is what is referred to that unpardonable sin. And what is that? It's rejecting Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit is presenting to you for your atonement. So if you reject Jesus, you offend the Spirit. If you reject Jesus, then there is no forgiveness. There can't be any forgiveness because he's the only one that we can receive forgiveness. So you see, if you reject the sacrifice of Jesus then there is no other offering that you can give for an atonement. So the writer makes this point, and this is what he's saying here all together. To turn away from Jesus and the cross leaves nothing else that can save you from your sins. To turn away from Jesus and the cross leaves nothing else that can really effectively save you from your sins. I was thinking about this when um, we bought a new set of tongs when we moved into our house and you know the tongs that you need to cook with they came in a whole big set and we took out one of them and we set it aside for a very special purpose we, we hung it near the laundry room so to be ready to use ready for us to grab and you know what to grab centipedes you got it centipedes I mean, think about it. You can pull out the one from your kitchen drawer, right? And you can grab the, the you, you, you know, but do you really want to use something, you, you know, that you caught a centipede for your salad, you know? That you really want to do that? I mean, I know you can wash it, but for me, just the thought that this wriggly, evil, wicked creature, right, was once in its grip just grosses me out. So that's why you need a special tongue just for that. I mean, right, think about those seven-inch, you know, or more centipedes. I mean, you're not going to just grab it with your hand, right? No way. You're not going to, like, get a paper towel or, you know, it's a cloth to grab it. No, they, they, they'll turn around and, and bite you, right? The thing is, without tongs now, there's nothing else that can efficiently and effectively capture a centipede running around inside your house. So there you go. That's your tip for today. You can tell everyone what you learned in church. Well, listen, without Jesus, there's no way that your sin will be effectively dealt with. Now remember, the writer's been talking to the Jews who are, who are in the church and they've been pressured and persecuted by their other Jews, family members and all, to, to leave the church and go back to the temple and its rituals, to go back to the old system. And last week, if you remember, in verse 25, we saw how they were not to be forsaking the assembling of together, not to forsake fellowship, right? Which was what? The manner of some. See, some were already jumping ship. Some were already leaving the new covenant, Jesus, and going back to the old. So the writer is saying, look, you guys, you know, if you really do that, if you leave Jesus and go back to the rituals for atonement, it will not effectively take care of sin. And that's what he's been talking about this whole time, and we've been looking at that for chapters and chapters, haven't we? So to turn away from Jesus and the cross leaves nothing else that can save you effectively from your sins. Someone said this, if you turn back on God's only provision for sin, Jesus, then, you, then how can you be forgiven? 
And that's the truth, you guys. Let me ask you all. If, 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 you're, if, if you are perfect, if you're here, sitting here, and you're perfect, and you don't need forgiveness, raise your hand. Anyone? No one? See, I knew it. You're all sinners, evil, wicked sinners. No. So am I. So am I. Then you know what? Then we should do all we can to cling to Jesus. We should do all we can to stay close to Him. We should run to Him and find God's love and God's forgiveness. So don't pull away from Jesus, but cling to Him. All right. The predicament of pulling away from Jesus means you face no other offering. And then number two now in our outline, number two, no other outcome. You also face no other outcome. Take a look with me here now, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, as we go on. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now the writer goes on to give two quotes. That's, the, that's why the, the, the quote marks in, in these phrases. He gives us two quotes coming from Deuteronomy chapter 32, I mean, verses 35 and verse 36, in support of what he's talking about. So the first quote is from verse 35 of Deuteronomy 32, is, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, Moses wrote that God's holy justice will be paid out to those of sin against him. That's really the basic idea of what he's saying. The second quote, the Lord will judge his people. Moses was saying this. You know what? In the end, God will have the last word. He's the one who's going to bring justice. Everyone will be held accountable when they stand face to face with the Lord God. So the writer is saying God is is basically already warned back in Deuteronomy, back already warned of the consequence to abandoning God. What he's saying, there's no other outcome here. That's our heading, right? But the eternal judgment in the end, if you leave Jesus Christ. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was really, he was giving his last message, you know, before he died. And that's the setting. So he's really giving his heart and he's sharing everything with them about what, what he's really encouraging them and exhorting them to do. And in this section where these verses are quoted from, Moses was warning Israel not to abandon God and go after the idols. Turn from God and then just go into a whole different belief system. Basically, you know what he was saying? Don't fall into apostasy. Apostasy. Which is renouncing and rejecting what you initially had committed to belief. So the writer's like saying, hey, you know like what Moses said, what he said back there, the apostate who abandons God, he'll face eternal judgment. But the writer's going to go on, and we're going to see this in this next section. He's saying, you know what, but you believers are, are real followers. You're, you're, you, you're true, true guys. You're not an apostate that will face the judgment of God. And I, I say that just to you know, give you a little preview of what we're coming up to, because Some confuse this passage as proof that you can lose your salvation. But remember what we studied back in Hebrews 6, how we talked about we cannot lose our salvation. If you missed it, try to grab the CD afterwards. You can listen to it online even. See, I believe 
the writer's talking about an apostate here. And this apostate was never really saved in the first place. And I believe those that left the fellowship, the manner of some, right, to go back to the Jewish rituals and all, they were not really saved. They were not really true believers. They seemed to have professed Christ, like said the prayer, but they never really believed. Are, they are those that came right up to the edge of saving faith, but they never stepped into salvation. I remember reading this um, Puritan, uh, Richard Baxter, Baxter, years ago, and he has a book entitled The Almost Christian Discovered. And it's about Paul's com- conversation in the book of Acts with Agrippa and how Agrippa's like, hey, you know, I like what you're saying, how, how Agrippa came to the edge yeah, of really totally committing his life to the truth that was presented to him by the Apostle Paul, but he didn't. And so the writer says he's an almost Christian there. And that's what the apostate is. They get so close, right at the edge, but they never step into salvation. They heard and understood the gospel. They heard and even were convicted of sin, you know. They, but they did not fully repent. They probably maybe even made an emotional decision to come forward, but not a hard choice to surrender all, I mean all, to God. So that's why the apostate doesn't last in their commitment. And eventually, they left the fellowship and went back to the old rituals. Remember what 1 John 2.19 says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And that's talking about apostasy and apostate. Now, maybe you're sitting here wondering, how do I know if I'm, I'm this unbelieving apostate or just a backslidden Christian? The answer, it's hard to tell, you know. It's hard to tell. But if you truly repent and choose Jesus and keep your commitment to him, then you'll know you're not an apostate, but a true believer in Jesus. And we're going to see more of that as we go. Okay, so since God is already warned that there's no other outcome for those abandoning God, then look at verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is then a fearful thing. It's a terrible thing. It's it's this whole, it's very, you know, something you should be afraid of to one day come face to face. Now think about this, with the Lord who you rejected right? Because every person is going to come face to face with Jesus, right? right? Every knee will bow, right? Uh, To Jesus Christ our Lord, Philippians 2. The phrase uh, to to fall into his hands means to helplessly be given over to God's control. In other words, you can't do anything about it once you're in God's hands and under his control in that state. And the words Living God here, it speaks of how real and alive God is, whom the apostate has shunned. So here's the idea here. God's judgment is to be feared. For this is even if you walk away, even if you change your beliefs about him, that doesn't mean God is gone. He's still alive. He's still there. God is not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. Come on, everyone. No. 
right? He's our living God. God is not dead. You know, I was thinking about the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's famous for making the statement, God is dead, actually. Now, he wrote this from the perspective of the Age of Enlightenment, which was this intellectual and philosophical movement going on all over Europe during that time from, I think, 17th to the 19th century. God is dead. That phrase was more about the idea that the while well, they were saying the universe was no longer believed to be governed by a divine hand, but only scientific physical laws. It was also the idea that governments no longer needed divine appointment, but we can organize ourselves by rational thinking. And it was the thinking that God was no longer needed for, for laws and moral standards and principles of society because a collective agreement was all that was needed. Isn't that like today, right? right? Our society is moving away from biblical principles to relative moralism, right? To, to whatever the masses agree what is right and wrong, then that's what it is, rather than the absolute truth of what the Bible says. Well, this was actually the start of the secularization of the West, and where, where philosophy, man's philosophy, science were the go-tos to find meaning and direction in life. So really, when Nietzsche said God is dead, it was, it was really human beings saying, God, we got it now. We are capable now. We don't need you anymore. But think about that. That doesn't mean God takes a back seat and people are no longer accountable to God anymore, right? God is not some fairy tale that, well, we don't believe him anymore. Just because you close your eyes and it does, that doesn't mean what's in front of you disappears. No, God is still there. And God is alive and well. No matter what people may believe or not believe, God is not dead. What does it say there? Here, he's the living God. And that's what the writer's putting out here. Without the blood of Christ, you're going to fall into the judgment of his hands so i understand you may walk away from god but that doesn't mean that you you're not going to be held accountable you will be and there is no other outcome so the writer seriously says this and this is his point in this these two verses to shun god will only bring one thing on the day you face him judgment to shun god will only bring one thing on the day you face him judgment i read about a man who thought he could escape justice um mr g tyndall i think it was in a california court was in court charged with robbery he asked judge rodriguez if he could go to the bathroom the judge said okay he allowed him and while the bathroom door was guarded mr tyndall climbed up the plumbing and opened a panel in the ceiling he lifted himself into the crawl space and headed south well, he had only gone about 30 feet or so when the ceiling panels broke from under him and he crashed down onto the floor right back in Judge Rodriguez's courtroom. <laughs> Funny, huh? But hey, that goes to show you, you can't escape justice. Well, that's what the writer is pointing out here. Just because you put God out of your life, it doesn't mean that you will escape God's, God's courtroom of justice in the end. To shun God will only bring one thing on the day you face him, judgment. I don't know about you, but I don't want to fall into the hands of justice 
in the hands of God's hands of judgment here. I know what I deserve. I know my sin. I know how I fail him. And, I can, and I'll, I'll do this here and there, and I continue to. You know what? I want to believe in Christ's forgiveness and his atonement. That's where I want to be. And so I want to fall really more into the hands of mercy. Amen? You know, when David realized his sin, when he, when he called for a census of the land, pridefully he did this, right? Then he repented and he confessed. And you know what he said? In the middle of 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 13, he said, Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. That's what I want. Perhaps maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you made the mistake of pulling away from God in your life. Well, you know what? Go back to Jesus. And find that he's there waiting for you. He's there welcoming you. He's there saying, fall into my hands of mercy. Go to him. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you. All right, let's go on to our last heading here. Number three, no other option. No other option. The predicament of turning away from Jesus, you face no other offering, no other outcome. But you know what? With all this truth, Believers see no other option, no other option. Hebrews chapter 10 and the rest of the verses of this chapter is this section. Beginning at verse 32, it says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. We'll stop here for a moment. Okay, here the writer says, Look, I know it's been hard. You guys have been under persecution and pressure to leave. But you've made it this far, he's saying. So don't forget, he says here in verse 32, don't forget the former days. Don't forget the early days when you first was illuminated, saying you saw the light of the truth of gospel, and then you accepted Jesus, and you made a commitment, and you were saved. Don't forget that. And that when you believed, he says here, you endured a great struggle with suffering. In other words, you guys remain committed and faithful through all the persecutions and and all the pressures that you felt then when you first came to the Lord. And then verse 33 describes some of that. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Now the word partly here, it could be better translated as sometimes. So uh, look at it that way. So sometimes you were made a spectacle, like publicly humiliated. By reproaches, which is like ridiculed, you know, put down. And tribulations, you know, the NLT translate tribulation here as being beaten. And sometimes you've become companions. That word means like partners. In other words, you willingly stood with those who were mistreated, who were treated wrongly, who were persecuted also. And then the writer even adds a little testimony of himself in verse 34. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and also joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So even these Jewish believers stood with the writer when he was locked up for his faith, and they showed compassion. They loved on him in that way. as, as they, they could have been thrown in, in prison too, but they still stood with him. And they also, the writer says in this verse, joyfully accepted, you know what, the loss, 
through the plundering, and that word could be like confiscation of their goods or property. Some of the persecution is they lost their things in that persecution. They, they came and grabbed them and, and mistreated them in that way, their persecutors. How could they have joy in the middle of all that? Well, they knew there's something better, it says here, and longer lasting for them in heaven. So the idea here is the Jewish believers had faithfully kept their eyes, you know what, on eternal realities and not the present adversities. Guzik said they made it through the time of persecution by keeping a heavenly perspective. And I like that. I think that's a word for us, you guys. As, we, as the society gets darker, as, as, as things start moving more towards the end times, you know, it's going to get harder. And persecution is already being stepped up all around the world and even creeping into our own country against Christians. But you know what? We keep our eye on the eternal realities and not the present adversities, and we'll make it through. Then verse 35, he says, Therefore... Do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So the writer says, therefore, in other words, since they have been faithful from the beginning, the writer encouraged them to keep going and not cast away your confidence. In other words, your confidence in God, your faith in God. Don't abandon what you believe in right now. Because you know what? Ahead of you is that great eternal reward that we know about, that we learn about, that is our hope. And we've talked about that in the past in this book. So what you need to know, though, the writer says, is to keep that endurance. The word endurance is that steadfast perseverance. And so that way you continue to do the will of God. And then it says you will then receive the promise of the eternal life in heaven. And think about that. It's opposed to or unlike the apostate who will face judgment. That's what he's saying. Hold on, persevere, be steadfast because you'll get the reward. You'll be able to have a life in heaven. But unlike what we've been talking about, the apostate who will be judged. And then be motivated. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. For soon in a little while, Jesus is coming. That's what he's saying. He will come and not delay. You know what he's saying? Hey, Jesus can return at any moment. And I'll tell you, if there's any time that we could say Jesus really can return at any moment, it's right now. If you look at what's going on in the Middle East with the U.S. and the tensions, high tensions between the U.S. and Iran, with Israel being being threatened with the Hezbollah in the north, the Hamas in the south, the rockets they're shooting, the incendiary balloons that are going over with Syria to the northeast there in, in cahoots with Iran. And Israel saying, you know what, we're, we're preparing for war with Iran because if U.S. and Iran get in a fight, then Iran's going to come for us. And, and then Russia, right, Ezekiel 38, 39, um, is right there on the ground, and that's the prophecy there in Ezekiel. All there going on. Now, U.S. isn't in that prophecy, but somehow what's going on is a step into what we've been studying there. So if there's any time we can say Jesus can return at any moment, it's right now, you guys. So the writer says, see, this is a hope now. 
This is really the hope that Jesus could come back. Why? Because when Jesus returns, what happens? They're going to be with him. They get to spend eternity with him. And you know why he says that? Well, that's in contrast to the apostate who, who when he comes face to face with God, it'll be judgment. That's why he's talking about this. That's why he's motivating us even here. These believers, this is the idea, were to continue on in how they started. They first endured up at verse 32, and now they are to continue on in that same endurance in verse 36. See, understand, right, that, I mean, they're under constant persecution and vicious suffering. Yeah, vicious persecution and suffering. They're under constant pressure. And, and you can imagine, ever since they were saved, it, it, it's been wearing on them. So many were tempted to just give in and give up. But the writer saying, there, you are not to change a thing. How you live from the start, how you endured, you're to continue on in endurance and press on in Jesus. Can you imagine what these guys were under? Can you imagine the persecution? I mean, the hurtful things that were being say, said, you know, the emotionally charged words designed to cut them down. Probably some of these Jewish believers are even considered, you're dead to our family now. You know, just ostracized, cast aside in that. Can you imagine all that going on? It was hard not to give in to those heart-wrenching situations. But the writer's saying, hey, no, hold on. Hold on in these extreme circumstances. Because you know when you hold on, it only confirms that you're not an apostate. It only confirms that you're a true believer. And so that's why, look at verse 38. The writer says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the writer puts forth two kinds of people. One who believes, and one, the apostate, who draws back or pulls away from God. Those who are, are really saved are the just, right? They've been made right, justified, made righteous by God in Jesus Christ because of the atonement of his sins. They are the ones who are saved by faith, and you know what? They live every day by faith, and they survive by faith, and they continue on by faith. And actually, this sets us up for the next chapter. You guys know what the next chapter is? Uh, it, you don't know? It's chapter 11. 10, 11, right? No, just joking. No, but chapter 11 is known to be the hall of faith where we're going to see testimony after testimony of guys in the Old Testament who hung on, who continued on, who didn't give up on God in faith. And I'm so excited to get to that when, uh, uh, in the next time. So this actually sets us up, but these are the guys in faith, true believers in faith, hold on to Jesus. But those apostates, well, they draw back. It means to shrink away. It speaks of those in our title, pulling away from Jesus. And you know what? God is no pleasure. In other words, he does not think well of those people because they are apostates. So the idea is those who are really saved prove it by continuing on. But those apostates who are not really saved prove it by pulling away from Jesus. You know, this reminds me of the parable of the sower, right? Matthew 13. Remember, the seed represented the word of God and it fell on different types of soil, the seed, and that represented the, the heart, the different types of heart. 
heart. Now the seed that, that, that fell on the good soil, the word of God that went in and fell on a good heart, right, that produced much fruit. In, in other words, that heart embraced Jesus and, and totally embraced him, believed in him and was saved and produced all that spiritual fruit. But the soil of three others was not so good. Remember, there's the hard ground where the seed of the word of God just bounces off the hard heart and Satan easily snatches whatever might have taken effect there, right? The birds of the air come and eat. Then there's the stony ground, the seed that fell on the stony ground. And that, that stony ground is soil that was full of rocks, so it was shallow soil. And here the seed sprouts up with joy, Jesus said, but the roots don't go deep. So when the sun comes up, the hot sun comes up, and it withers that emotion, the sprout dies. In other words, those who receive the word and, and, like, and like it, uh, they, as soon as persecution, trials, sufferings come, they end up abandoning Jesus. Then there's lastly the thorny ground. The seeds fall in the soil that's filled with thorns and weeds that end up choking it out. And you know what? Jesus said that is the heart where, I quote, the, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So these pull away from Jesus because of a loss of faith. Uh, over stress and worry in the world, and then they get distracted by, by their own self-gain and worldly greed and gain. Those last two soils sound like what happens to apostates, those who pull away from Jesus. But the writer closes this chapter with really a confirming word. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. I love that. You and I are not apostates. That's what he's saying. We are not part of those who draw back, who pull away from God to their own perdition or destruction, the judgment that we talked about earlier. No, the writer's saying that's not who we are. Verse 39, but we are basically of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I love this. The writer says we belong to those who truly believe, those who have that saving faith, those who believe and are saved. That's what he's saying here. I love this. Do you see, this passage is not about losing one's salvation, but it's about identifying yourself as a true believer. The writer, like is saying, how do, how do you know that you're a true believer? How do you know that you're not apostate? Well, because from the very start, you guys walk with God, you endured, and that he knows you guys will continue on in endurance. And that proves you're not an apostate. The idea really, since you are saved, you are true believers, so don't pull away. That's what he's really coming to in all this. So when it comes to trials, sufferings, and persecutions, you guys, there's no other option but to endure because you're a believer. There's no other option but to continue on because you're a believer. Because you're a believer, there's no other option, our heading, right, but to keep the faith. There's no other option, you guys. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, the second part, uh, the, the Lord speaking to Moses says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, you're at a fork in the road. When you face those persecutions, when you face those sufferings, when you face those, face those troubling times, 
you had a fork in a road. Now you can, you, you, you can choose uh, life or death. Life is Jesus' side, right? You can choose blessing or cursing. Life is Jesus' side, right? You, and then God says, but you guys are my people. So you know what? Choose life, you guys. Choose the way to be with me. And in a way, whenever we face trials and tribulations, we're standing at a fork in the road. You can go to the right, which leads to Jesus and abundant life. Or you can go to the left and leave Jesus, which leads to a path that ends in judgment. Let me say this. When you choose Jesus, you choose to the path where believers walk, even if it's hard. Even if it's hard. The other path the apostate runs through because it seems easier, but the end is not. So you see, for the believer, there's only really one option at this fork in the road. There's no other option but to stick with Jesus. So the writer makes this last point. This is our final point this morning. To continue to endure and keep the faith is what believers do. To continue, in, and in, to, continue to endure and keep the faith is what believers do. September 30th, 2014, Thomas E. Duncan became the first ever Ebola patient diagnosed in the U.S. By October 8th, he died. I don't know if you remember that many years ago in the news. When it became known that this man from West Africa was infected with this dangerous disease, you know, fear, panic spread throughout the hospital in this Dallas, uh, Texas hospital, and then out into the city and to the whole nation. Now, not knowing he was sick, he had come to the U.S. to marry his fiancée, Louise Traw, who had been living here for 15, 16 years. And her and her family ended up being quarantined along with the whole apartment complex. That's, that's how scary it was. But in the middle of this incredibly hard time, you know what? Her church was there for her. Even after his death, ugly rumors, false accusations, hatred, Anger swirled around this whole situation. But no matter what the public or the media did or said, the church continued to be a faithful support to Louise and her family and visited her even through the quarantine. I even read they, they even pulled money together to buy a house that replaced everything she lost. They had come in and thinking it was all infected, destroyed, you know, everything in her house. Men in, in hazmat suits, she described. During that time, one member of the church, reflecting on all that the church was doing, uh, was thinking of the answer to what many people were asking. Why are you doing this? Now, you've got to understand this church is, is basically a, 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 a holy, like, rich church, and, and Louise was, was a black woman, right, and her family. But they, they grabbed her, put her, their arms around her, supported her, did everything, no matter what, you know, they were accusing and saying about this whole situation. And so he was reflecting. I was reading this. I was really touched and thinking of, of the answer to what many people are asking. Why are you doing this? Well, his thoughts went to what the pastor of that church always said. This is what we do. And that's it, you guys. Believers continue on even in the middle of hard times, accusations, attacks. We don't stop serving. We don't stop believing in God because... That's what we do. That's what believers do. This is what we do. 
Are you going through some hard times today? Are you feeling weary, yeah, and well-doing, yeah, in that good work? Have you been under some attacks lately? Has, has the spiritual warfare been rough? I don't know about you guys. I've, I don't know. The, the past month or so has been depression feels more heavier and, and just attacks and things just seem more for me. I don't know. I don't know why. But you know what? We go through it. We hold on. We hang on. We continue on. We, we, we go in endurance and steadfast perseverance because that's what we do. That's what we do. Don't let the enemy tempt you to give up and give in. Know that you're, you're not alone. Sometimes you think, well, I'm the only one going through this. Know that, hey, that's why I said what I said. Even me, I go through things. You talk to other people, they go through things. And look at what we're, we're reading right now. These Jewish believers faced, yeah, the suffering and persecution, probably more than we have ever done in our lifetime. And so, but the writer's saying, look, hold on here. And you will hold on, he's saying, because you're true believers. Accept the situation. Resolve in your heart, though, to never pull, never pull away. To, because to continue to endure and keep the faith is what believers do. This is what we do. You know, as we come to a close, I understand that feeling, that feeling very well. To want to quit, you know. Say, God, I, I'm over this, you know. I, I'm so annoyed at this. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I know what that's like. I know what it is to, to pray, like, God, please take this away, yeah. Take this trial away, you know. Take this situation away. But I'll tell you, these are the times that we show ourselves of what we are made of, yeah? Our true colors come out. These are the times where we need to have faith, hold on to God's word. And you know what? These are the times, let me tell you, when God comes and we experience his power, his strength, his answer to prayer like we've never, never experienced before. Remember what Philip Philip Brooks said, I, I always quote this. I love this quote. It's one of my favorites. He, he wrote, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. I love that last part. In other words, don't pray, well, God, you know, okay, I know I got to go through trials. Just give me the ones, I, the only ones that I, I, I think I can only handle. No. Pray for power, yeah, to go through those extreme trials that you think you'll never make it through. I'll close with this poem I came across with. It goes like this. Three men were walking on a wall, feeling faith and fat. When feeling got an awful fall, then faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that he stumbled and fell too. But fact remain and pulled faith back and faith bought, brought feeling too. Isn't that good? It's faith in the fact of the truth in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, that keeps us from going that apostate way. It's faith in the fact that God will save us. And what he started, his work in us, he's faithful to complete it, right? Philippians 1, 6, that he will be there with us. It's faith in the fact that God will save us from the apostate's judgment and we will one day be in heaven with him. All this 
junk here on earth will be done with. And we'll be eternally with the one we love, Jesus. It's faith in the fact that God will get us through in the get us through the hard times and that he will give us peace to those feelings that sometimes don't want to go along with our faith in the fact, right? So you guys do all you can, make all the effort, pull out all the stops to hold on to Jesus. For then you will not be in the predicament of pulling away from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are our living God, powerful, alive, working, and loving us. Without you, we have nothing, and we are nothing. Lord, help us not to trample your love by, Lord, our rebellious sin, but help us to love you more and choose you more, not sin. Help us, God. I pray for those who are going through trials and tribulations right now. We're suffering, God in hurt and pain, and just struggling, Lord. I pray that you give them the power and strength, Lord, to hold on, to go on, to take each day, each hour, each minute at a time, Lord, knowing that you are there and that with you we will make it through. Lord, make us stronger in our, in our power to live for you, in our trust in you, and in our faith in you. And so, God, I, I pray right now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will fall upon us, God. That as we move into this time of communion, Lord, we would be deeply moved, God, by what you have done. And at the same time, your Holy Spirit will deeply come into us like never before. God, I pray for your filling, Lord. I pray for your baptism, Lord. I pray for your anointing, God, upon each one of us. Spirit, fall upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen.